Good morning, Mission View Church. I don't know if you're new or old at the church, but no matter what, we welcome every single person here. Um, our mission is to make disciples. We want to make disciples who have an intimacy with God that we learn what this thing called community, the church is all about. And ultimately, even as Josh shared earlier, that we would have an influence in the world around us because it can make a difference. It can make a radical difference in the world. Now, I don't know if you get many lessons from just life, but I do all the time. And this week I got lessons from the obituaries. Now, I want you to just kind of follow along with me some of the observations here, but let me introduce you. And I don't say this callously because these people were people that were loved, they were admired, they were dearly, they're going to be dearly missed by individuals. But Joe passed away at 84. It says that he went home to be with the love of his life, Millie, on December 1st. Uh, it says that he served proudly in the Korean War in the U.S. Air Force. After 37 years of service at Rockwell International, he also worked for Spiral International, from which he retired. Then there's about two paragraphs of all the people that he left behind. Now, Sandra, she passed away a little bit earlier in life, uh, younger. She's 62. She passed away December 3rd. Now, Sandra worked for Disney Entertainment for about 10 years, and previous to that, she was a nurse. She loved playing in the bell choir at Westview Healthy Living, and she was an active member there. And then it says there's about two paragraphs of names of people that she left behind. Now, there's one even younger, and his name is David. Now, David is actually a personal friend of mine. He died at 51. I'm 51. He died at 51, and he was one of my youth leaders years ago. I'm mourning his, his death. It's interesting what is said about David. David recognized, it says this, David recognized Christ as his Savior and Lord of his life. He strove, strove to honor him with his heart and with his spirit of service and giving. This was demonstrated in his years of working as a manager and supervisor with United Disability Services, the Salvation Army, Safe Landing, Youth Shelter for Boys, Emmaus Ministry in Chicago, and various areas, area nursing homes. David Hart, David's heart seemed to beat for the less fortunate. So this is David's life. Now I found one other on the internet, and this was Dolores. Dolores, it says that she went home to the afterlife to meet her husband Raymond, her son Paul, um, and daughter Ruby. Now her daughter is writing this and she says, Dolores had no hobbies, made no contribution to society, and rarely shared a kind word or deed in her life. I speak for the majority of her family when I say her presence will not be missed by many. Very few tears will be shed and there will be no lamenting over her passing. Her family will remember Dolores uh, and among ourselves we will remember her in our own way, which were most sad and troubling times throughout the years. We may have found some fond memories in her perhaps, we will think of those too. But truly, I believe at the end of the day, all of us will really only miss what we never had, a good and kind mother 
grandmother, great-grandmother. I hope she is finally at peace with herself. As for the rest of us left behind, I hope this is the beginning of a time of healing and learning to be a family again. There will be no service, no prayers, no closure for the family, for she spent a lifetime tearing apart. We cannot come together in, in, in the end to see to it that her grandchildren and great-grandchildren can say their goodbyes. So, here, so I say here for all, goodbye, Mom. Now what kind of lessons do we learn from this? Well, there's a few lessons that I learned. For every single one of the people that I mentioned, their time has expired. It's done. Some earlier in life, some later in life, but it's a simple observation, but it's a true observation. We only have so much time here. Here's another observation. Do you realize that, that in reading these obituaries, there's usually only one line given for occupation? About one line is written to summarize 30, 40, 50 years of service. We pour so much into our occupation, so much into what we do for one line. And yet we see the people after them take a paragraph, two paragraphs, sometimes three paragraphs. So it seemed to me that who we, how we are defined is not by what we do in this life, but it's who we are. And it's how we have loved individuals. Another observation that I see here is that for some people in the obituaries, this is the end. This is for the most part all that they were looking forward to, but then there are other people that you read and you see, this is just the beginning. My, for my good friend David, I know him. David isn't just a name in the newspaper and a picture. He is a person that spent his life serving the homeless, serving those that were less fortunate. He always had a heart for those in need. And all he's going to do is continue to serve God in the future in heaven. And it's a beautiful passing from one to another, from one responsibility to another. And here's my last observation. My last observation is a lot of people in the obituaries, they all want some form of God in their life. They all hope for heaven. They all are hoping for some kind of afterlife. There's not too many annihilists who say this is just it. For the most part, they're thinking there's something beyond this life. And so there's some hope that they're going to be in the afterlife, some hope that they're going to find peace there. Have you ever been to one of those funerals? I have. I've done many of them. There are those kind of funerals where you know how they lived. They lived a life without reference to God and people are standing around and they're like, you know what, I, I, I think he's in a better place or I hope he's in a better place. And they're trying to strive to find maybe that little prayer that they prayed somewhere in life or just some little shred of evidence that they were going to go to heaven. But the reality is they probably weren't. Now, when I do those funerals, I don't put people in hell. I don't put them in heaven. God knows. But what I do say is that there's a lesson we learn from so-and-so. Life is short, so we need to consider how our life should be. So here's my question for you today, Mission View. What is going to be said in your obituaries? See, you can't do anything 
when you're here. But you can do something now. So it's worth us thinking about it right now. What is going to be said in your obituaries? What's interesting is in chapter 4 of 1 Peter, if you will turn there, 1 Peter, we've been making our way through 1 Peter. 1 Peter is, uh, Peter is going to get us to think about the action that we are to take. Last week we talked about just this idea, the principle that we should suffer for, for doing what's right and the ultimate example of Christ, how he suffered on the cross for us. He did what was right. He suffered for what is right. And now Peter is really putting it in application to you and me in everyday life and how we are to redeem the time that God has given us. It's time to. It's time to. And he's going to give us several ways in which we are to redeem the time that God has given us right now. And so what I want to do is I want to read the first six verses of chapter 4. That's all we're going to cover today. And I want you to notice how much action and how many references to time are given in this passage. Read with me chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same, with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for what? The will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles wanted to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised that you do not join with them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now there's some interesting and difficult things in this passage as well, so I'd encourage you to keep notes. But let's take a look at the way that we are to spend our time. The first way that we're to spend our time is that it is a time to think like Christ. Take a look at verse 1 again. Let's tear it apart. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. Stop right there. Now think about that. He is transitioning. He's saying, okay, we saw the principle that we're to suffer for doing what is right. We saw that already and we saw the example. Since Christ, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. We saw that example. Now what we're going to do is we're going to think about the action point. But here's an observation. Peter is not saying, hey, just look at Jesus as if he's a relic in a museum or a nice artifact. He's not saying, oh man, that is just really, really nice. Beautiful, beautiful. Let's move on. No, no, no. He is actually trying to motivate the believer to move to West Point, to get to a place where you are trained for action, where you is, this is, Christ is the Annapolis for us, where we are learning the battleground of how we are to live out our faith each and every day. That's why Peter goes on and says, arm yourself. Now this was unique in the entire New Testament, this exact phrase. And when he says arm yourself, he is obviously drawing a 
military analogy where he is saying, get ready for battle. Be prepared. I don't want you to go out without the armor. I want you to be ready, fully clothed, fully ready to engage in the battle. And here is how you are going to engage in the battle. Think like Christ. You need to have the mind of Christ. Now, Mission View Church, do you realize how important having the mind of Christ is? It is so vital because when we, when we understand that being in the Word and being in the mind, uh, mind of Christ right here, we start to see things differently. When we come to church on Sunday, it's not like going to the museum of saying, oh yeah, okay, that's nice. No, 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 no. Again, this is West Point. This is Annapolis. This is the place in which we learn to engage in the battle. We are putting on the mind of Christ. When we open up this during the week, it's not just a nice Bible reading. This is essential for us to have the mind of Christ. Why is it so important? Because of the way we were before Christ. Do you realize that in this world there's a lot of pain? I'm going to give you two formulas here. Here's the first formula. Pain. Pain. Along with pain is lies. See, in this life there is all kinds of troubles. And when you were young and there was somebody that said something bad about you, there was something that happened to you, you suffered through, you were the child that saw your parents tore apart and divorced. You had a perception of what of a father was or a bad father or a good father or a bad mother or a good mother. You saw all kinds of things. And in that pain, Satan being brilliant in his strategy he wanted you to believe something about yourself and so he got you to think wrong things about yourself he wanted you to think that you won't amount to anything he wants you to think that every that God is no good that that he doesn't love people he is at arm's distance from you that he is evil all this wrong thinking leads to wrong behavior in your life See, this is our condition before Christ, but enters into Christ who gave us the example of pain and suffering through his death, which was able to destroy the power of sin. And so what happened is now pain is, re is replaced, pain and lies is replaced with truth. And when truth starts coming into your life and you start marinating on God's word, God starts to show you the error of what you were thinking. And so he gives you correct thinking. And guess what correct thinking will do? It will lead to holistic, correct behavior in your life where you will actually be able to sacrificially love your spouse, where you will actually be able to serve God with all of your heart. See, this is the heart of God. God came and suffered to release us from the grip of sin. And the more this reality sinks into our thinking, the freer I become as an individual. And when I am free, there comes joy and I serve God. And there is an excitement that God wants to do in my life. Here's the question, Mission View Church. Are you thinking like Christ? Is this just sitting on your stand? Or are you using this as to reprogram the thinking? Think about it. Now let's move on to the second thing. It's a time to realize the victory. Look at the second part of verse 1. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now that's kind of strange to you and I because it looks as if 
uh, Peter is saying, yeah, you, you can actually become sinless in your life. That's not, that's not at all what he is teaching. In fact, 1 John tells us this. 1 John 1.10 says, If anyone claims that we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our life. So what is this passage teaching? Well, Peter is once again showing how the suffering of Christ, namely through his death, brings a profound impact on our life. And that is this. He helps enable us to cease from sin. So what's that phrase mean? The literal translation means to be released from. To be released from the power of sin. In other words, God broke the power of sin through the cross. When I yielded my life, he broke the chains in my life, and he released me, and I am no longer bound up, but I am released, and I am living in victory. Now, why is that so vitally important? Because I'm speaking to some people, all of us, that have had those lies and that pain in our past, and the enemy still wants to remind us of all the mistakes we've made. He wants us to live back in that bondage, and he will attack you emotionally. He will attack you socially. He will attack you physically. He will attack you spiritually, and he doesn't want you to understand the victory that has been afforded to you and I. Now let me give an analogy, and I, God forbid that, that this ever happened. But let's just say you were captured one day by ISIS. They are threatening to take off your head. They are beating you without mercy. Just then, all of a sudden, just be, uh, when you thought you couldn't bear it anymore, you hear gunfire in the distance. And that gunfire starts to get closer and closer to the room in which you are held captive. And all of a sudden, the door busts open, and it's the special ops. And they have come, and they have rescued you, and they take you to a place of safety. Now, when you get to that place of safety, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Your life was on the line. Will you rejoice in that victory? Will you live life with a greater sense of purpose because of the freedom? Or will you go lock yourself in a room somewhere and pretend you're still in bondage? Because some people, that's you. That is you right now. You've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. You have been set free and you are still locked up. It's time to understand the victory that God has afforded us through the cross of Christ. What an awesome thing that God has done. Is this victory evident in your life? Think about it. Number three, it's time to do God's will. Notice what he says in verse two. He says, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, this verse simply builds upon the previous one. And it, basically, he wants us to see what victory looks like. He's saying it's not about the passions of the past, and we'll deal with that in the next verse. He's talking about something that God wants for us to proactively do. He wants us to live for the will of God. That's what he wants us to do. 
Now, one thing that I have found in my history of being a Christian is that we have this profound way of complicating the will of God. We make it very, very complicated, and it's really not that complicated. Let me simplify it for you today. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. God's will is God's word. Now, I want you to say it with me. God's will is God's word. Try it one more time and louder. God's will is God's word. Now, when we think of God's will, it's his heart. It's his passion, not my passion, not my heart. It's God's heart. It's God's passion. And God's will is his word. And guess what? He wrote us a love letter. And he put all of his passions right here. He put all of his desires. He is an open book for us. And what we learn when we get into this is we start finding out that God wants us to be holy just as he is holy. That's his will. God wants us to love one another deeply, just as he has demonstrated a deep love for us. That's his will. God wants us to be his ambassadors to the world, to hold out the truth. We see that all over the place. He wants us to pray. He wants us to sacrifice. He wants us to give sacrificially. He wants us to serve sacrificially. He wants us to know him, seek him, worship him. All of this is God's will. Now, what complicates God's will is when we try to put it on a personal level and we make it all about us. Oh, God, what woman do you have for me? Or what man do you have for me? Oh, God, what career am I going to have? What am I going to do in life? How am I going to make ends meet? Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to wonder about these things, but sometimes we have the wrong emphasis and the wrong focal point. Might I say that God is less concerned about your career, your future spouse, and your livelihood, and more concerned about his desire flowing through us? Think about that for a minute. About his desire flowing through us. I have an assignment. You have a homework assignment this week. I want you to read 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. It's only 11 verses. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Now here's, I'm just going to give you the, the cliff notes of it. Basically, God, Peter is writing again and he's saying, you know what, we get to participate in God's divine truth. He has given us all that we need for godliness and success in this life through the principles of his word and his divine nature. We can, we, can, we can be a part of it. We can participate in his divine nature. And he says, and when we do that, we escape the corruption of the world and he makes a promise in this passage that we will not be ineffective or unproductive. You see, when our focal point is about the passion of God flowing through our life, God automatically says, oh, no, I'll, I'll feed you. I'll take care of you there. Don't worry about it, but I'll take care of you. Don't, that spouse, you know, I, I know what your need is. I'll take care of that, too. I'll take care of the job. I'll take care of all that. This is what I want you to focus on. And at the very end, this is what Peter says. If you do these things, you will never fall. Get that. You will never fall and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. How many people want that? 
Every one of us, we want that rich reward. We want to end the, the, the we want to be make sure that we're here and we have something that says about our love for Jesus and we finish the fight. So here's my question. Are you wondering about God's will or are you doing it? Are you wondering about it or are you simply doing it? Think about it. We go on to the next time too. Time to forget the past. And friends, this is so vitally important. Take a look at verse three. He says, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles wanted to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Now what Peter is basically saying is that there is a race to be run, and it's a long-distant race, and you can't be bound down with the weight of the things of the past. Have you ever seen the Olympic runners? They look like all like Ethiopians, and they get to the line. Can you imagine somebody coming out weighing 230 pounds, getting ready to run an Olympic run with their snowsuit on and with their big heavy boots on? They're ready to go. You look at that and say, that's an absolute joke. And yet some of us, in an analogy of life, are trying to run like that. We are trying to run all the way down. We have all this stuff from the past that's weighing us down. And this is what Peter is saying. we got to get rid of the, the, these things of the past in two different ways. First of all, you can't participate in it. And second of all, you can't allow those things, the effects of those things, the fact that you were there at one time, hold you down. Here's the reality. Peter is saying there has to be a clean break. And from this passage, you see that there were people that he's writing to that they were a part of the party. They were a part of the scene where they were drinking and they were getting involved in sexual relationships and they were getting involved in that whole scene. And he is like, that is done with. That didn't bring joy then and it's not going to bring joy now. The greatest joy that you will ever experience is when you serve God with all of your heart, with all the weight behind you, with all the, the past problems behind you. See, I'm speaking to some people that you're still dealing with the past problems. This was your lifestyle. This was how you operated. And some of you deep down in the deepest secrets of your heart, you know you partied. You know you got sexually involved. Some of you had unwanted pregnancies. Some of you had abortions. And there is a deep, deep cloud that's behind you that seems to want to continue to hold on to you. Guess what? When you came to Christ, you were forgiven. One hundred percent. Let go. I love the book of Colossians. And in Colossians chapter 2, he says this. He forgave all of our sins. All the sins in the divine court of law that would have been there to condemn us. That would have stood opposed to us. It says that he forgave every single one of them. We have been set free. He forgave us completely. Don't you think it's time that you forgive yourself? Forgive yourself. Let go of the past. Have you? 
let go of the past? Have you put it to rest? Think about it. Here's a fifth time to. The fifth time to is to no longer run with the pack. Take a look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join with them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Now Peter is basically saying, okay, there's ramifications. You had a past. You had a people that you hung out with that were ferocious about attacking the joy and the fun in life, or at least what they thought was the joy and fun in life. This pack could have been your family members it could have been a brother it could have been a sister it could have been uh, uh, just some colleagues or college buddies people that you used to hang with all the time and it says here that they are genuinely surprised now the word surprise isn't like a oh that's kind of strange no 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 this is a surprise that's a complete bewilderment this is like beyond logic. Why would you do something like this? Why would you run away from the gang like you just have done? Why would you do that? They cannot figure it out in any way. It's been said before that it's, it's, it's taboo to break family tradition. You have come to Christ and there are some in your actual family that are wondering, what has happened to you? What has happened to you? There are some of your friends that you hung out with that are like, why aren't you parting with, why aren't you doing what we do anymore? It's taboo. There are colleagues that are wondering why you're not trash talking like you used to. Taboo. And what Peter says is that they will malign you. In other words, they'll speak ill of you. They will they will say things behind your back or to your face. They will be mean to you. And what Peter is saying is don't worry about that. You know why? Because we have to have the higher road. The reality is they're still in their depravity. You've been set free from your depravity. All they see is spiritual darkness. They don't know any better. But guess what? They will come around when they come to that crisis, when they come to that place in which they are, their backs are up against the wall. The very person they malign is the very person that they will seek out because they know you were steadfast. You had the answer. That's part of being missional in our life. Now what Peter is saying here is he's not saying get rid of all your lost friends. He's just warning you they may leave you. They may leave you. Now what we need to make sure is that our life is set apart and different. We need to ask the question, am I truly radically committed to Christ? Think about it. Here's the sixth thing. It's time to give an answer to the judge. Look at what verse 5 says, and this is to the pack. This is to the people that you hung out with. He says this, But they, this pack, will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, the, 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 he's basically saying, if there was people that were listening there, or if there are people that are listening here, that you're part of, you're wondering why your friend is so different, and you've come to church, and this is kind of a first-time experience. He's just saying that you will give an account. In other words, the literal phrase is to give a word back. In other words, there's going to be a day that every single person will stand before Christ and they will give a word back to Christ. In other words, they're going to have a talk. 
Jesus is going to have a talk with you. And he's going to account for your life and for your actions. See, we live in a world where we think that we won't give an account, but he is saying clearly we will all give an account. We are told multiple times that King Jesus will judge the living and the dead. We're told in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Whether they followed him here on earth or not, they will bow before him. Doesn't matter what religion, every name, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now what we know in the scripture is that there is a judgment for believers. You can read about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. It talks about the judgment of believers. That's going to be one place. And then there's a judgment for lost people that rejected Christ in this life. You can read about that in Revelations 20, verses 11 through 15. We won't go there. But let me tell you the difference. The judgment for the believer, the issue will not be sin. We've been set free from sin. We've been covered by the blood of Christ. The issue here for us is obedience. There are Christians that are not obedient. And God will have you give an account for the obedience that you live in this life. But for the lost, the issue will be sin. Because we have one of two choices in this life. We either let God cover our sin and pay the penalty, or we pay it ourselves. 2 Thessalonians describes what that payment will be like. He, God, will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. Can you imagine what it's like to have the, the very removal of the presence of God? That's what hell will be like. This leads us all to be asking the question, am I ready to be judged by Christ? Think about it. And here's the last time too. The last time too is in verse 6, is the time to live out the gospel. Take a look at what he says. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those that are dead. I'll explain that in a minute. And though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. There's a connection between preaching the gospel and living in the spirit. Let me show you what he's saying. Now the English wording here is a little funny because it sounds like Peter is advocating that we preach to to, to the dead. The gospel was preached even to those that were dead. He is actually talking about those believers who had already passed away that had heard the gospel. It was preached when they were living and they had accepted Christ. Now remember that Christians had been martyred. Many of their loved ones had been martyred. The fact that these believers who have passed and the believers who were living have been and were being judged by men. In other words, persecuted. But this is what he is saying. Here's the admonition to the believers. He says, but what I want you to do is I want you to live in the spirit while you have time. I want you to live in the power of the spirit for the sake of the gospel while you have time. Now, I know it seems like we come to this application often at Mission View on how important it is for us to live out the gospel. But Josh gave us an incredible illustration of what an impact we could have if there was somebody that reached out to this terrorist, if there was somebody that helped him along the way. We have a responsibility to live a missional life on mission with God where we are loving people. We are representing Jesus Christ 
Christ to the people around us. Now, some of you might think, well, this is just the preacher's pet topic. He loves to talk about this all the time. I just want you to know, I don't bring up the topics. I just expound on them. And so if this comes up again and again and again, just realize it's God. It's his word. It's what he says to us on a consistent basis. Now, I know my mother had to repeat herself many, many times to me. She told me it was because I had a thick skull. Maybe that's why God does it for us. It's because he needs to repeat it because this is his heartbeat. Lest you think that I don't ever make mistakes in this area of representing Christ, I want you to know I have fears just like you. There's, I have blown opportunities. There's times where I feel like I have just misrepresented Christ in a royal way. It's usually with the phone, you know, trying to rectify my visa bill and the other person isn't cooperating on the other end. I sometimes misrepresent Christ. But here's my admin, this is my admonition for all of us. Needless to say, what we need to do is live out the gospel by the power of the Spirit. Bill Hybels in his book, Just a Walk Across the Room, said this. This is, the key is this. My objective is not to contrive a way for someone to get saved. Rather, my objective is to walk when he prompts me to walk. Talk when he says to talk. Fall silent when I am at risk of saying too much. And stay put when he leads me to stay put. If I can lay my head on the pillow at night, knowing that I have cooperated with the prompting of the Spirit that day, I sleep like a baby. Dear Mission View Church, how is it that we should stand out and stand firm as an outsider for God? How should we do it? This is what Peter has said to us today. Have the mind of Christ. Understand the victory that we possess. Strive to do God's will. Forgetting what lies behind. Uh, not running with, with the pact anymore. Knowing that we are going to be judged by God. We are to stand firm. We are to stand out for the sake of the gospel of Christ. Are you with me? That's what we are to do. I'd like to close just in a word of prayer. And I'm going to do this in a unique manner. There's a very old kind of poem. It's not really, it doesn't rhyme or anything, but it was written a long time ago. And it, it, it's kind of a banner for me. It's a banner statement, a mission statement of my life. And I'm going to offer it as a prayer. I'm going to ask that you just bow your heads and just think about the words. But at, at the point in which you identify with what is being said, just stand to your place. Let's, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, hear our hearts. Hear our hearts. I'm a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back. I won't let up. I will not slow down. I will not back away. I will not be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. And my future is secure. 
I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, small plan, smooth knees, colorless dreams, chintzy giving, and dwarf goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotion, plaudits, or popularity. I now live by presence, lean by faith, love by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by power. My pace is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions are few. My guide is reliable. My mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, diluted or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I must go until he returns, give until I drop, preach until all know, and work until he stops me. And when he comes to get me for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. I am a disciple of Christ. Let's all stand. Lord, hear our hearts.